Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast. I hope you all have had a happy and healthy start to 2021 and that you are all enjoying your summer. My spring and summer so far have been extremely busy, which is why my absence has, yet again, been far too long. However, I really missed being able to put a show together, so I decided to just pick a film and get something into production. Busy work schedule be darned. So I decided that I would discuss one of my favorite films, where Roddy played a semi-minor character, and this is mostly due to my love for the author who wrote the novel the film is based on. Today I will be discussing Agatha Christie's Evil Under the Sun. This is not to be confused with the 2003 ITV film Evil Under the Sun, starring David Suchet as Poirot, though that is a wonderful adaptation which I love very much and highly recommend if you haven't seen it. This is the 1982 film starring Peter Ustinov as the Belgian detective, and I think you will enjoy it as much as I do. Before I begin, I want to mention that I have, once again, majorly cheated in putting this show together, as due to time constraints, I have, yet again, cherry-picked, copy-pasted, conglomerated, and stuck together bits of information I gleaned from Wikipedia and IMDb's trivia section instead of writing my own script for the show today. Also, the information I was able to find for this movie sadly doesn't include any anecdotes or information about Roddy's experiences on the film at all. But I will be including the making of featurette from the film at the end of the podcast, which contains interviews with the cast, including Roddy. And seeing as the information, though considerably less than usual for most of the films I discuss, is interesting, fun, and educational, and the interviews at the end are very enjoyable. I feel that today's very short episode will still be a fun experience for you, despite its disappointing lack of material on Roddy. And now, without further ado, here is episode 21 of Not Just Yesterday. Every night at seven, you walk in as fresh as clover, and I begin to sigh all over again. Every night at seven, you come by like me returning and me oh my I start in yearning again You seem to bring far away spring near me I'm always in full bloom when you're in the room for every night at seven Every time the same thing happens I fall once again in love but only with you. That's wrong, Rex. You look fearfully glum. You're supposed to be enjoying yourself. God knows you're paying enough for it. But don't I know it? As a matter of fact, Daphne, now I was wondering if you would care to trade my bill for a super piece in New Yorker. <laughs> hey, you know the sort of thing. Uh, farewell, courtesan. Hello, innkeeper. Oh, darling, yes, I'd love to help, but it's not publicity I need. It's the cash. Oh, well, God, darling, don't we all? Who are the gardeners this morning? 
Sage cannot wither, nor custom stale their infinite vulgarity. Morning, gardeners. Everything tickety-boo? Good morning. <clears throat> sure, Daphne, but I could wish that my shower worked as snappily as the one that I've got back home in New York City. Oh, well, you can't expect American plumbing when you're in the Adriatic. I guess not. Well, at least we've got a shower. A cousin of Odell's was at some place in Yugoslavia last year and had to wash in a kind of shack in a field. Isn't that so, Odell? It wasn't my cousin, Myra. It was my aunt. It was your cousin, Thelma Snatchbull. Okay, if you insist, but there were two shacks. One for the guests and one for the staff. It was very stylish. Boats coming in, Daphne. Prepare to repel boarders. Bon appétit, Monsieur Poirot. Merci, Yacinthe. Oh, uh, I do not think that uh, formal introductions are necessary. Poirot. Hercule Poirot. There are those who have called me the greatest detective of all time, a description with which I find it difficult to quarrel. But even a great detective must at times recharge the little gray cells. And I recently took my vacation on an Adriatic island so remote as to be unknown even to the guide Michelin. I hope you haven't come here to practice your sleuthing games on my guests. They've all got far too many skeletons in their cupboards. Arlena is my wife. That's all there is to it. Till death do you part. Ah! She'll be murdered! What the hell do we do now, Odell? Just leave it to me. Do you know what I'm most sick of in this place? What, madame? Pity. I can't bear to be pitied. Oh, my. I'm the last to arrive. I'm sorry, Sir Horace, but it's my duty to put it to you. That you were furious. You lost your temper. You strangled her. That is poppycock! That is poppycock! I wish you to consider very carefully a bathing cap, a bath, a bottle, a wristwatch, the diamond, the noonday gun, the breath of the sea, and the height of the cliff. You, 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 just wait. Stay, stay right, Linda. You tell her to tell him the truth. But with Hercule Poirot, mysteries never last very long. You are skeptical. Well, perhaps you would care to pit your wits against mine. Bonne chance, mes amis. Evil Under the Sun is a 1982 British film based on the 1941 novel of the same name by Agatha Christie, first published in the UK by the Collins Crime Club in June 1941. The novel features Christie's detective, Hercule Poirot. During the Belgian detective's Devonshire holiday, he notices a young woman who is flirtatious and attractive, but not well-liked by a number of the guests. When she is murdered during his stay, he finds himself drawn into investigating the circumstances surrounding the murder. 
The title chosen by Christie for this novel refers to Ecclesiastes 6.1, which reads, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy upon humankind. Ecclesiastes 6.2 continues, Those to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that they lack nothing of all that they desire. Yet God does not enable them to enjoy these things, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous ill. The book was well received by literary critics at the time. Maurice Wilson Disher's review in the Times Literary Supplement of 14th June 1941 was positive. To maintain a place at the head of detective writers would be difficult enough without the ever-increasing rivalry. Even Miss Christie cannot stay there unchallenged, though she has a following which will swear her books are best without reading the others. Unbiased opinion may have given the verdict against her last season when new arrivals set a very hot pace, but Evil Under the Sun will take a lot of beating now. After summarizing the plot, Disher concluded, Miss Christie cast the shadow of guilt upon first one and then another with such casual ease that it is difficult for the reader not to be led by the nose. Everybody is well aware that any character most strongly indicated is not a likely criminal, yet this guiding principle is forgotten when Miss Christie persuades you that you are more discerning than you really are. Then she springs her secret like a landmine. In the New York Times book review of 19th October 1941, Isaac Anderson wrote, The murder is an elaborately planned affair, a little too much so for credibility, in view of the many possibilities of a slip-up somewhere along the way. But Poirot's reasoning is flawless, as it always is. Evil Under the Sun adds another to the already long list of Agatha Christie's successful mystery tales. The plot has some similarities to the Christie short story Triangle at Rhodes, which was first published in the U.S. in This Week magazine in February 1936. In Triangle at Rhodes, Poirot again witnesses an apparent liaison between two married people. Again, everyone believes that the responsible party is the beautiful Valentine Chantry, who is the murder victim. The murder in this novel is by poison, and it is thought that Chantry and her lover attempted to murder her husband and that the plot went wrong. Poirot, however, reveals that the murder was committed by Chantry's husband, in cahoots with her apparent lover's wife, Mrs. Gold, who intended to frame her hapless husband. In both stories, the key twist is that the appearance of the seductress power deflects attention from the reality of the situation. Mrs. Gold says of Valentine Chantry, In spite of her money and her good looks and all, she's not the sort of woman men really stick to. She's the sort of woman, I think, that men would get tired of very easily. In Evil Under the Sun, Poirot says of Arlena Marshall that she was the type of woman whom men care for easily and of whom they easily tire. The character of Colonel Weston had originally appeared in Peril at End House and makes reference to that case upon his first appearance in Chapter 5. Minor character Mrs. Gardner is herself an admirer of Poirot's exploits and refers to the case of Death on the Nile in Chapter 1 of this novel. In 1982, the novel was adapted into a film and was the second film to star Peter Ustinov as Poirot, 
after his debut in the same role in the 1978 film Death on the Nile. His co-stars included Dame Maggie Smith, Diana Rigg, Dennis Quilly, Roddy McDowell, James Mason, and Sylvia Miles. While the general plot of the murder remained the same, the film adaptation featured a number of changes, some of which are as follows. 1. The setting was shifted to a secluded resort frequented by the rich and famous in the Adriatic Sea rather than in Devonshire. 2. Horace Blatt is a millionaire with a knighthood and not a heroin smuggler. Blatt was in a previous relationship with Arlena before she married Kenneth. He is investigated by Poirot for trying to ensure a fake jewel and reveals when interviewed that Arlena took the real jewel, but not before having it copied and giving the copy to Blatt. The real jewel later disappears during the murder, but is found in Patrick's possession by Poirot when he finds evidence to prove him as Arlena's murderer. 3. Christine Redfern's claims to have a fear of heights is exposed by Linda's account on the day of the murder, when she recalls Christine waving to her from the edge of a cliff. Poirot reveals this as part of his denouement. Christine also has Linda wear a swimming cap to muffle the sound of cannon fire at 12 o'clock, called the noonday gun in the film. This plot element did not feature in the novel. 4. Linda Marshall does not attempt murder, is not suspected of the murder, and does not attempt suicide. 5. The gardeners are theatrical producers, who resent the fact that Arlena left a production of theirs on medical grounds. The pair question if this was done on purpose. Carrie, Mrs. Gardner, is renamed Myra, and is made to be an American instead of a British citizen. Myra replaces Brewster when going with Patrick on a boat to find Arlena's supposedly dead body. Evil Under the Sun, unlike its predecessors, was a box office failure, grossing just $6 million against its $10 million budget. EMI Films had had a big success with Murder on the Orient Express, and in 1975, head of production Nat Cohen announced the same producers would adapt Evil Under the Sun as part of a slate of six films worth £6 million, also including Spanish Fly, 1975, Aces High, 1976, The Likely Lads, 1976, and Sweeney, 1977. EMI ended up making all of these films except for Evil Under the Sun. In May 1977, EMI announced they would make not one, but two Christie adaptations, Death on the Nile and Evil Under the Sun. Initially, only the former was made, which introduced Peter Ustinov as Hercule Poirot. In March 1981, Barry Spikings announced EMI would make Evil Under the Sun at a budget of $10 million. Producer Richard Goodwin said, What we try to do is provide terrific, escapist entertainment that you can take your kids to and make it beautiful at the same time. The screenplay was written by Anthony Schaffer, who had worked on Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile, and an uncredited Barry Sandler. The adaptation stayed fairly close to Christie's work, but truncated scenes for time constraints and removed minor characters, and added humorous elements that were not present in the novel. Additionally, the novel was set in Devon, but the film was set on an Adriatic island in the fictional kingdom of Tyrania, based on Albania. The characters of Rosamond Darnley and Mrs. Castle were merged, creating Daphne Castle, played by Maggie Smith. The characters of Major Barry, Inspector Colgate, 
and Reverend Stephen Lane were omitted, and the female character of Emily Brewster was rewritten as a man named Rex Brewster, played by Roddy McDowell. The film was directed by Guy Hamilton, who had previously directed The Mirror Cracked in 1980 for the same producers. Hamilton said, I think one of the reasons the books and films are so popular is that people know what to expect, though now we try to add a few surprises. Costumes were designed by Anthony Powell, who had won the Academy Award for Best Costume Design in 1971 for his work on Death on the Nile. However, Peter Ustinov designed Poirot's black-and-white striped bathing costume, which is featured towards the middle of the film. While promoting the film, Peter Ustinov said he was going to do another Poirot film set in Jordan, but they couldn't make it yet due to the country's lack of facilities. Richard Goodwin, the producer, did not want to make another one for a few years, saying, we don't want to overdo them. It was likely this was Appointment with Death, which ended up being produced by Canon Films and released in 1988. Ustinov returned as Poirot, and Anthony Schaffer co-wrote the script, his fourth adaptation of a Christie novel. When asked about this film and his role as the Belgian detective, Ustinov said, I think it's a better script than the first one I did, and much more fun. I find Poirot a very engaging character, although he's quite awful, really. I should hate to know him. He's very vain, self-contained, and finicky. People have asked me why he never married. Because he couldn't solve it, of course. An ancillary reason is that he's very much in love with himself. He has probably been quite true to himself, and I don't think he's ever cheated on himself. Maggie Smith and Jane Birkin also appeared in both films. Dennis Quilly and Colin Blakely appeared in the earlier Murder on the Orient Express, 1974. The producers really wanted Graham Chapman to play the role of Sir Horace Blatt. However, he was reluctant to star, as he felt the other actors were not stars like its predecessors. However, after James Mason and Maggie Smith signed on, he reached out to the producers and was told the role was already cast. Sir Derek Jacobi was interested in playing Kenneth, but could not do so between his theatrical and film engagements. At that time, he was working on Inside the Third Reich. Diana Rigg was cast as an archetypal actress diva, to put it kindly, as Diana Rigg used a much stronger and rather unrepeatable word. Nicholas Clay was cast in a key role. Guy Hamilton said, I was looking for someone like Stuart Granger or Michael Rennie, Handsome, dashing, physical, romantic. Nick has it all. A fine sense of timing, the right looks, and a good physique. Carol Channing wanted to play Myra Gardner, and the producers were eager to sign her on. But due to theater engagements, Channing was unable to be cast in the film. Subsequently, Sylvia Miles was cast instead, who based her role on Broadway producer Terry Allen Kramer. I never met her, but I figured that's what a producer should be like. Miles said she was busy working on It's Me, Sylvia, a play based on her life, when she got a call from her agent about the offer to play James Mason's wife in this film. Filming would take 12 weeks in Majorca and London. Miles replied, But Milton, I'm in rehearsal for the story of my life. Milton said, Forget your life. This is more important. Miles thought about it and agreed. She later said that due to this decision, she ended up having the best experience of her life. The film was shot at Lee International Studios in Wembley, London, 
and on location in Majorca, Spain in May 1981. The Majorca location was suggested by director Guy Hamilton, who had lived there for several years. Screenwriter Anthony Schaffer once said of this, The location is important. The island should be a star, just as the Nile steamer in Death on the Nile and the Orient Express were stars. This movie was released 41 years after Dame Agatha Christie's source novel of the same name was published, and was selected to be the 1982 Royal Film Performance. It was screened on Monday, March 22, 1982, at London's Odeon Theatre, Leicester Square, in the presence of Queen Elizabeth II, with proceeds from the charity UK premiere going to the Cinema and Television Benevolent Fund. However, this screening was not the world premiere of the movie. It had debuted in Australia a month earlier in February 1982, because EMI's Can't Stop the Music, 1980, had had its best box office returns there. Though the title Evil Under the Sun isn't explained, in the book, Emily Brewster talks about what a wonderful place the island is, to which Poirot answers, There is evil everywhere under the sun. Reverend Stephen Lane, omitted from the film, later points out to Poirot that that line is almost an exact quote from Ecclesiastes, which reads, Yea, also, the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and the madness is in their heart while they live. Actually, the title of the movie is part of Poirot's dialogue with Mrs. Redfern, when he says, The sky is blue, the sun is shining, and yet you forget everywhere there is evil under the sun. To close out the show for today, I will be inserting the Making of featurette from the DVD of Evil Under the Sun, which contains some fun interviews from the members of the cast, including Roddy. I hope you will find it enjoyable. Murder is usually associated with dark alleyways, foggy nights or lonely moors, rarely with the sparkling atmosphere of a holiday island, the setting for Agatha Christie's Evil Under the Sun. Director Guy Hamilton and his crew have come to Mallorca to film the book, and with them, a cast of international stars. lives on the island, but it wasn't the producer's first choice as a location. Uh, John Braben and Richard Goodwin had done a fair amount of hunting around the Mediterranean base and they'd even looked at the Azores and places, but they were finding that all nice quiet little beaches were occupied by large modern hotels and it was getting fairly desperate and I said, well, you know, come and look at the, my neck of the woods because I think we've still got one or two little places here which will do very well. With the firm pedigree of murder on the Orient Express and death on the Nile behind them, the team set sail with high expectations. 
Once again, Peter Ustinov puts on the mantle of the legendary Belgian detective, Hercule Poirot. We've done a slight twist on this one. In other words, uh, Poirot is on holiday when this murder takes place, and naturally, as it's on an island and he's handy, how about giving us a hand and solving it? And he says, I can do that all in 24 hours, no problem at all. But it does become a huge problem for him because every single guest has what appears to be a watertight alibi. And uh, somebody says, you know, nobody could have done it. And he says, yes, but we still have a body, don't we? Mallorca itself is playing a tiny island off the coast of Albania. The year is 1937. Ten rich and apparently carefree guests descend on the elegant hotel for what they hope will be a peaceful holiday. Most of them thought they were strangers to one another, but from the very beginning, paths begin to cross uncomfortably. I don't think you know Arlena. Oh, oh yes. Yes, I do. Arlena and I are old sparring partners. Hello, Daphne. Oh, it's been years. Well, a little time, yes. Years. Alina and I were in the chorus of a show together. Not that I could ever compete. Even in those days, she could always throw her legs up in the air higher than any of us. <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth, this is such a surprise. When you told me of an island run by a quaint little landlady, I had no idea it was Daphne Castle. Diana Rigg plays Alina Marshall a former chorus girl turned actress. But on the stage on Broadway, Alina never found success. Oh, I think she's a disappointed woman. <laughs> I think she's not the star she, should, she thinks she should have been. I mean, she certainly isn't Gertrude Lawrence by any means. And she's well over the hill by now. So um, she's not going to make it. And then she married a nice, respectable English gentleman and, and headed for um, a sort of cosy, gentle existence. But of course, she's the one that everybody hates. Alina, I was wondering if you've had a chance to read the proofs of the biography yet. Oh, indeed I have, Rex. I simply couldn't put it down. But I knew, I knew you'd love it. <laughs> <laughs> what a busy bee. You've been researching exactly where I was born and when. Well, darling, there aren't too many stars who were born in Tooting Beck at the turn of the century. <laughs> and a sweet way you wrote about how I landed my first leading role in Flames of Eternity. However did you find out? I bribed his wife. <gasps> Nobody <laughs> the days of my youth. Mm -hmm. But I've shoved all that behind me now, Rex, which is exactly what you're going to do with your lousy book. Oh, but Alina, darling, you promised when we were in New York, and I've spent the advance, so oh, I, I simply must have that release. Forget it. You're not going to barbecue me to keep yourself in sailor suit. But, but Alina, Angel, you must. I said forget it. I'm not going to sign that release, and that's final. You're going to regret this, Arlena. That's a promise. Roddy McDowell portrays Rex Brewster, a show business writer who claims not to be intentionally spiteful. No, he's an international gossip col columnist. No more serious than that. I think uh, uh, basically quite shallow and derivative. Doesn't mean badly, just doesn't know any better. But his columns are often cutting. I don't think he thinks they are, though, you see. I think he thinks he's doing a service to the world <laughs> and um, sort of guileless and therefore perhaps more destructive than... or certainly more destructive than he imagined. 
All the guests, except the victim, are potential murderers. But is there a need to act like one? No. No, because I think the author has done that. If one uh, chose to play that, I think it would be uh, gilding the lily. The charm and fun of the Agatha Christie um, situation always is that uh, everybody is suspect. But the author has already accomplished that, so I think you just go ahead and play the situations um, head-on for what they are. Right, once more, please. Just get the timings right. <coughs> Oscar winner Maggie Smith plays Daphne, a woman who made more money as the mistress of a king than ever she did on the stage. I think she started off on the stage and didn't get very far with it. Had several affairs and one rather helpful one. And she now runs a hotel. The murder is the, is the real problem. I mean, it's not really very pleasant having that in a hotel, which is meant to be jolly and amusing and somewhere to go for a holiday. And you've got a terrible body lying all over the... So I think she's just really very worried and just hopes that, you know, to, you know um, I think she's just trying to keep it quiet. Oh, dear Monsieur Poirot, a, a word in your ear. The whole world knows that you're a man of enormous discretion and gallantry. A man not only privy to the secrets of kings and prime ministers, but also a, a man who would never willingly stand by and see a lady in trouble without rushing to her aid. I appeal to you now as just such a frail woman in need of help. In fact, I throw myself on your mercy. <laughs> Couldn't we make this a private investigation? You know how peculiar people can be about a spot of murder. I think he's too clever by half, and he just maddens me. But, I mean, then I have to be incredibly charming to him because I want him to keep quiet about the whole thing. I think I find him very long-winded about it all. Will you bring your colossal brain power to the aid of a lady in distress? Will you clear up this hideous mess for me with all the brilliance and discretion for which you are world famous? One moment, madame. I must uh, carry out a little investigation of my own before answering your question. Mm. Monsieur Redfern, at what time did you and Madame Gardner find the body? Oh, it was 12 o'clock exactly. That bloody gun went off as we were coming around those rocks there. Nicholas Clay appears in his first whodunit. How does he see the character he portrays? Oh, rotten Patrick Redfern. He's a terrible man, really. He's an awful chap. He's uh, a rare and curious creature. He's a main chancer, is Patrick. He's a main chancer. And what of Monsieur Poirot? How does Redfern see him? He is uh, somebody to Patrick who is uh, an enigma. He doesn't know what to make of him. He merely keeps up his own pretense, hoping that Poirot has a pretense. Patrick Redfern's wife, Christine, is played in the film by actress Jane Birkin. What are her thoughts about Peter Ustinov's Poirot? For me, Poirot is Ustinov, so it's very hard to separate them. I can't... I mean, I see... If you have lunch with him, you see him doing... Practically every accent in the world, <laughs> and being equally funny, but he's—he um, is Poirot. I can't imagine anybody else. He's left his mark. He makes him very funny, very sweet too. The measured tread of Monsieur Poirot moves steadfastly as ever towards the scene of the crime. Peter, what do you think of Poirot? I enjoy him very much. It's 
uh, really, because it enables you to behave as you take great care not to in life. Uh, in other words, he's extremely vain, which I'm sure we all are, but some of us disguise it. And uh, uh, with an English education as opposed to a Belgian one, you're supposed to, you're trained to be a good loser, which means that you have really no idea how to win. That you have to find out for yourself, and you can be just as ungraceful as Poirot. But Poirot's great point is that he doesn't mind. It doesn't occur to him. It seems to him quite natural to be vain. Would you be very kind and oh, help me push this out? You require assistance, madame. Uh, it's like trying to launch the Mauritania. <laughs> Without this or bang. Thank you so much. Oh, and Mr. Poirot, please don't tell anyone where I've gone. Everyone will keep following me about. Everyone, madame? Well. I don't think that uh, Agatha Christie really had a very detailed view of Poirot, except that he was bald, which of course I am too, and small, which goes without saying. And um, I, I think that she was, according to her, the book that I, her, her book, she thought that it was too conventional to have yet another English detective, because it was full of Sherlock Holmeses then, and, and Bulldog Drummond, and all sorts of people like that. And so she thought she might make him French. She was advised by friends not to make him French, as that was too conventional. So she made him Belgian. And now, Monsieur Poirot, I'm not as lucky as my dear wife. I have absolutely no alibi. I was sitting over there on a stone bench reading my book, and between the hours of 11 and 12.15, I didn't move. Now, I'm well aware, Monsieur Poirot, that in your world, when a murder takes place, everyone automatically comes up with a watertight alibi. However, I belong to that great world of millions of innocent men and women who, curiously enough, don't have the foresight to provide themselves with an alibi. James Mason, does he enjoy a good detective story? Ah, well, perhaps. But uh, people like Agatha Christie films. And uh, when you say, you know, if somebody says, what is the film you're doing? And I say, well, it's an Agatha Christie film. And they say, oh, 
Marvelous! How wonderful! An Hercule Poirot film? The mind and methods of Hercule Poirot are as inscrutable as ever. But as he peruses the hotel register, you can be sure he's looking for only one thing, a clue to the murderer. Well, I think Peter, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, has sort of grown into Poirot. <laughs> Uh, to me, he is Poirot, the definitive Poirot. We play for the laughs uh, at the start of it until there is a murder, and then the little grey stales start to work, and he's a, quite a tough gentleman, is Monsieur Poirot, when he sets his mind to it. Because it is a very sordid murder that we are going to investigate. I wish you to consider very carefully a bathing cap, a bath, a bottle, a wristwatch, the diamond, the noonday gun, the breath of the sea, and the height of the cliff. From that, you should be able to solve it yourselves. That is all for this episode of Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast. Thank you for listening. This is Zoe Dean signing off and reminding you once again, as always, dear friends, to keep smiling. You seem to bring faraway spring near me. I'm always in full bloom when you're in Every time the same thing happens I fall once again in love But only with you This episode of Not Just Yesterday is lovingly dedicated to the memory of Diana Rigg who died at the age of 82 on September 20th, 2020. We miss you, Diana. You're still the top. You're the top You're the Colosseum You're the top You're the Louvre Museum You're the nimble tread of the feet of Fred Astaire You're the National Gallery of Salary Camembert you're the knife, <laughs> you're the Tower of Pisa, you're the smile on the Mona Lisa. I'm a worthless check, a total wreck, a flop. But if baby I am the bottom, you're the top. You're the top. You're a new invention You're the top You're the fourth dimension I'm a frog without a log on which to Thank you Hop But if baby I'm the bottom You're the top We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast. If you enjoy the show, a great way to help support us is to leave a rating and review on iTunes. This gives us better ideas of how we can constantly improve the program for your continued enjoyment. You can also support the show by becoming a patron. To become a patron of Not Just Yesterday, please visit www.patreon.com slash Roddy McDowell pod. 
That's R-O-D-D-Y-M-C-D-O-W-A-L-L-P-O-D. The podcast is hosted, written, edited, and produced by Zoe Dean. The occasional co-writer, research assistant, and constant help with this podcast is Julie Carricker. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of Barren Space Productions, its partners, or affiliates. The musical tracks, films, and television shows discussed and heard in these podcasts remain the property of their respective owners. Not Just Yesterday does not own the rights to these tracks used, nor does it claim ownership. Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast is not affiliated with any major film or television company and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit barrenspace.com for this and other amazing content. This has been a Barren Space production.